0: Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. John. This morning we're going to be standing on holy ground as we study John chapter 17. This prayer should be uh, something of what the burning bush was to Moses, what Jonathan was just talking about. For he- Here we hear God speaking, and so we should put off our shoes and bow humbly as we are about to tread on the most hallowed ground. Look at verse 1 with me. Jesus spoke these things, raising his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Just as you gave him authority over all mankind, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This chapter was read to the Scottish reformer John Knox over and over again as he lay on his deathbed. He called John chapter 17 the holy of holies in the temple of scripture. Spurgeon with his usual eloquence says rightly of these verses, I remark that our Lord Jesus pleads for his own people. When he puts on the priestly breastplate, it is for the tribes whose names are there. When he presents the atoning sacrifice, it is for Israel and the Gentiles whom God hath chosen. This prayer is called the high priestly prayer of Christ. And what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer was a prayer that the Lord could never have really prayed himself. Well, how come? Well, he could not have prayed it because part of it includes, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. No, the Lord's Prayer is a model for us to use. So, really, John chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer. And just as Jesus can't pray to have his sins forgiven, we can't pray John chapter 17. Only the Son of God can pray this prayer. The value of its infinite richness is amplified by its uniqueness. There is no other chapter in the Bible like it. As one commentator explains, this chapter embraces the longest recorded prayer of our Lord while he was on earth. No doubt he prayed other prayers as lengthy as this, for we know he spent much time in prayer and communion with his heavenly Father. But God did not see fit to give us these other prayers as the Holy Ghost spoke to holy men. We have many of the sermons of Jesus Many of his parables, but only this one lengthy prayer. Now, we can break this prayer down into three parts. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 9 through 16, he prays for his disciples. And in verses 20 through 26, he prays for all who should follow them in faith in the coming centuries, which, of course, includes you and me also. Now, The circumstances of this prayer were certainly dismal from a human perspective, as it is just hours before the cross. Yet Jesus' prayer was anything but pessimistic. Instead, it was a confident declaration of undying faith and certain glory. It's uttered by one who had just affirmed that he has overcome the world, and it starts from that conviction. Jesus is looking forward to the cross, but in a mood of hope and joy, not one of despondency. This prayer marks the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. But it looks forward to the ongoing work that would now be the responsibility, first of the immediate disciples, and then later of those who would later believe through them. Jesus prays for them all. And to think that we are privileged to listen in as the Son of God converses with his Father just as as he's about to give his life as a ransom for sinners. Think of that. The Son of God is getting ready to go to the cross. The Father, who has known nothing but perfect fellowship with his Son, is now going to see him suffer anguish and subsequent alienation because of mankind's sin. Jesus also prays this prayer in the presence of his disciples as he knows that to a man they're all going to desert him when he needed them the most. And so he wants them to know that even that will not stop him from loving them. And I believe they often probably look back on this evening and this prayer and how it must have encouraged them for the rest of their lives to also follow in the footsteps of the crucified one. Think about this. After Pentecost, the proof of their faith was going to be demonstrated in dramatic ways as they boldly proclaimed Jesus to all who would listen. And though they suffered severe persecution, and for almost all of them martyrdom, the disciples would not abandon what they knew to be true. Even the threat of death could not undermine the undying conviction that God had placed within them. As one theologian observes, The sublime magnificence of the aspect of this prayer surpasses all literature in its setting forth the identity of being and power and love of the twofold personality of the God-man. We are brought by it to the mercy seat, into the heaven of heavens, to the very heart of God. And we find there a presentation of the most mysterious and incomprehensible love of the human race, embodied in the person and enshrined in the words of the only begotten Son. Now by reading the Gospels, we know how much prayer meant to Jesus. It was not only his regular habit, but his resort in every emergency, however slight or serious. When perplexed, he prayed. If tempted, he prayed. If criticized, he prayed. When hard pressed by work, he prayed. When hungry for fellowship, he prayed. He chose his disciples and received his messages from God upon his knees. And so Jesus begins the prayer, it says, by raising his eyes to heaven. When preparing this, I almost read over that phrase when I felt the Holy Spirit check me. Why would the Holy Spirit record that Jesus raised his eyes to heaven? Here's what I think. Jesus is now just hours from an excruciating death on the cross. By the way, do you know what the word excruciating means? The, excruciate, the word excruciating comes from the Latin word excruciare, and it was a Roman word that meant as painful as being crucified on the cross. The pain derived from crucifixion was so intense that the Romans had to create a new word for it. And that word is the root word of our word, excruciating. So, why did Jesus raise his eyes to heaven? I think it's to remind us that who or what we focus on is of immense importance. You see, we can tend to spend our entire lives with just a horizontal perspective. We are assaulted from every side by things trying to grab and keep our attention. And if we are not careful, we can waste our lives focusing on things that have no eternal significance whatsoever. That is why we are exhorted in Hebrews 12 with these words. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Allow me to unpack those verses for our purpose this morning. Firstly, we are told that we are all running a race. You're going to have to take the next thing I say by faith, but I used to be a decent athlete. I used to run a lot. Now, today, if I run anywhere, it's just to the store. But in our Hebrews analogy of a race, we are told a couple of things. First, a serious runner will rid herself of any obstacles that may entangle her progress. For example, what she really wants for dinner is an entire cheesecake. But instead, she has a tofu salad and a piece of baked chicken. Why? Because she knows that if she has any chance of winning that race, she can't be 20 pounds overweight. Well, what about us? Are there things in our life that is impeding our spiritual progress? Now, this hits close to me personally. What I'm about to tell you is going to surprise many of you who know me really well. Just this month, the Lord had me to completely walk away from following football in any form. Now, is football a sin? Well, of course not. But for me, with all the prayers that I'm praying concerning revival, not only for this church, but also in my personal life, I had to lay it down. You see, that Hebrews passage says to not only rid ourselves of the sin that so easily entangles us, but also of any obstacle that may hinder us. Listen to this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All things are permitted for me. But not all things are of benefit. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. What does that mean? Simply this. There are things that we can engage in that are not sinful in and of themselves, but if they hold too prominent a place in our lives, the Lord may ask us to lay them aside for the sake of our own personal growth and also to advance the kingdom of God. Or to put it a different way, Sometimes the Lord will ask us to refocus on the things that eternally matter. Now, is my flesh happy about giving up football? Not even a little bit. I've been following the Minnesota Vikings for 51 years, even though they've never won a Super Bowl. Over that time, they've been a source of some joy, but mostly just a lot of aggravation. So I thought, well, maybe the Lord's just being merciful to me by having me drop them. He's like, that poor kid's had enough. I don't know. What I'm saying is sometimes we just need to burn some bridges. I read a story that in the year 1519, the Spanish explorer Cortez hit the shores of the New World in what is now eastern Mexico. With a total of 600 men and less than 20 horses, they began the work of colonizing Spain. Shortly after their arrival, though, Cortez did something very interesting. He issued an order to burn all of the ships. You see, he feared that his men might be tempted to turn back, so he ordered that the only way back to the life they once knew be permanently destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. Now let's apply that principle to us this morning. Maybe this morning you're a Christian who's still entangled in some sin from your old life. If so, maybe some drastic action is called for. Maybe you need to burn the ships of relationships that drag you down or activities which can lead you into sinful behavior. But let's do whatever we need to do to run the course that God has laid out for each of our individual lives. Unless you think there's no use running a race in which spiritual giants like Paul just lap you time and time again, understand this. We are not competing against any other brother or sister. We're only competing against ourselves. And his teaching on the talents and pounds, Jesus makes this very clear. So it's what the Lord entrusted uniquely to us being developed for his glory. Are we laying down our rights and privileges to see others brought into the kingdom? Such is the nature of the race that we, won, that we run. Jesus now tells us that the hour has come. As we've been making our way through the gospel, Jesus has been telling people many times that his hour has not yet come. For instance, in the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, Jesus tells his mother, and Jesus said to her, woman, What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Later on in John 7, when Jesus' brothers mockingly ask him to go up to the feast to reveal himself as the Messiah, Jesus' response, You go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my hour has not fully come. But now, on the eve of his his crucifixion, his time has finally arrived. He says to his father, The time has come, so glorify me that I may in turn glorify you. In the upper room, Jesus prayed that his Father would be glorified and that Jesus would be shown completely for who he is. How was and is Jesus glorified? For what did he specifically pray? Well, he prayed for his glorification in the cross, he prayed for his glorification in heaven, and he prayed for his glorification in the church. Not only that, Jesus says that God has given authority over all of mankind. Well, for what purpose? So that he could give them eternal life. We're going to talk more about eternal life in verse 3. But first I have a question for all of us. Are we availing ourselves of the privilege that we have to actually enter the throne room of heaven to pray whenever we want? We have a privilege this morning that the Old Testament saints couldn't even dreamed of. Only the priests would go into the Holy of Holies. Let me give you an example. In those days, anyone who was not righteous in God's eyes would be killed the instant they set foot in the Holy of Holies. So to prevent further extermination, a rope with bells would be tied to the ankle of the man who had to venture in. So even if the slightest dead body sounding thud or tinkling of bells was heard, the corpse could be pulled back to his smug colleagues who may have been betting on his righteousness. Maybe that's where we get the phrase, are you pulling my leg? I don't know. Anyway, my point is we have an extraordinary privilege to go to God anytime we choose and as often as we choose. So now we can come to him with a prayer not like this. O high, exalted, and inscrutable God, far from us in your majesty, unreachable and unknowable. But rather, we can come with a prayer that begins, my Father. So why do you and I pray? It's interesting. We have a tendency to pray when things are in doubt. If I were to say to you, X is going to happen tomorrow. It's absolutely, definitely going to happen. God has willed it. X is going to happen, so you better pray about it. You might say, well, why pray? There's no reason to pray. If I know what's going to happen, why pray? But Jesus comes to an event he has known for a long time is going to happen. And yet he knows it's going to happen, and he starts praying. The cross is looming over him the very next day. But think about this. The thing that makes us decrease our desire to pray increases his desire to pray. What we have here is a contrast between Jesus' reason for praying and probably mine and probably yours as well. Our model of prayer, if we're not careful, is the mail-in application. That's all prayer is. We pray when we want things. We pray when something is in doubt. We pray when we're not sure we're going to get something that we really want to get. We pray to conform God to our agenda. But Jesus is the other way around. Jesus prays not to conform God to his agenda, to, but to conform his own heart to God's agenda. Let me put it to you like this We pray for God to give us things. Jesus prays to find God in things. Anything that happens, Jesus says, I want to glorify you in that. I want to know you in that. That's the reason he's praying. There are two great prayers in the Bible that Paul prays for the Ephesians. One's in chapter one and the others in chapter three. In chapter one, it starts around verse 15, and chapter three it starts around verse 14. There are two wonderful prayers. But when you read them, you're struck by a couple of things, that he's not praying for many of the things that we would normally pray for. He's not praying for protection. He's not praying for a change in circumstances. So what is he praying for? In chapter 1, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know the riches of the glory that is yours. And in chapter 3, he says, I pray that you may be filled with, with all the fullness of God. So instead of physical things, Paul's prayer for them is that they may understand the riches of the glory that God wants to reveal in them and that they may thereby be filled with the full